Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you here. And if you're a guest, welcome, right? From all of those who make Northridge their family, we welcome our guests. And I just want to say, hey, yes to all of you in Plymouth. So proud and thankful that you're here, but also to our other campuses, Northridge Grosseal and Northridge Brighton. We're so proud of all that you're doing and letting God do through you there. And we actually have people watching live stream all around the world and then Facebook Live. So welcome to all of you who are engaged. We're in a series called Breaking Through. Someone after the last service actually said, oh my gosh, this series has been so good for me. And I said, I'm really glad because I'm really giving it for me. Um, it, this is a topic that's so essential for me as I continue to want to grow in my faith. I have to keep breaking through. And if this conversation helps you, I'm so, so very, very grateful for it. And, and to get into this weekend's conversation, I, I, I'm just curious. How, how many of you have ever wrestled with doubt? Yeah. If you didn't raise your hand, wake up. <clears throat> I mean, all of us do, right? I sure have. I wrestle with doubt. In fact, if I'm really honest, yes, I've been a pastor for, you know, close to 40 years, but I still wrestle with doubt. In fact, I have to tell you, I, in order to keep my relationship with God real and dynamic and growing, I find myself having to consistently break through my doubt. And this is the reality that I want to kick off the conversation with. When it comes to matters of faith, no matter how strongly we believe something, there's always room for some doubt. Always for all of us. I, I love C.S. Lewis. He was a brilliant thinker and writer respected big time all around the world. And when he went from being an atheist to a Christian, he gave us this quote. Now that I am a Christian, he said, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. His whole point was when I was an atheist, filled with doubt about it. As a Christian, still battle with doubt about it. And here's what you need to know. Whether you're a Christian or not, doubt is a part of the human condition. It's wrapped up in who we are. So there's a result to that. Because doubt's so prevalent in our lives, you need to know that the result is that when not understood, when we don't deal with it properly, doubt can lead us to something that's not a part of the human condition, that's not a necessary part of our journey. It can lead us to the dark and destructive place of skepticism. So we have to learn to understand and deal with doubt properly because we're going to walk with it. It's going to be a part of our journey because we don't want to get here where skepticism rules in our life. That's where it gets dangerous. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, skepticism is slow suicide. And he was dead on. You see, skepticism makes it very difficult to believe in or trust anyone or any idea as being trustworthy. And if we can't trust anyone or accept anything, we can't love, we can't hope, we can't experience fulfillment. It's impossible. 
And so here's the truth that you need to embrace if you're going to ever really get to know God, walk in relationship with Jesus, experience his promises. Genuinely knowing and following Jesus demands breaking through our natural skepticism. Because all of us, as a part of our human condition, experience doubt. And often we don't properly process our doubt. It's natural to become skeptical and jaded. And I know I've walked that path many a time, and if we're going to really experience the fullness of Jesus or start touching the hem of his garment, building a relationship with him, we've got to deal with it. Rather than me talking about it, I just thought I would read a, a passage from scripture about it. God gave us a passage about this very issue. It's after his resurrection in John chapter 20, and he had already appeared to a group of the disciples, but then the passage turns to the story of Thomas in this particular moment of his life. And look at John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, now Thomas called Didymus. So you might just want to call him T. Diddy. Um, <clears throat> not sure. If he lived today, I guarantee you that was his name. But now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. He's alive. This is awesome. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Here, here Thomas is filled with and controlled by skepticism. He, he wasn't going to believe or accept anything, no matter what his friends said. And I want you to notice how he was looking down his nose at them like they were losers. He was basically saying to them, you gullible fools. And that's what skepticism does, you know. It, it clothes itself in arrogance. He was saying, you guys are brainless and just cutting them down. And can I just tell you, and this is an aside for those of us who live in the 21st century, isn't this exactly what happens so often today? I mean, just think about this. Skeptics try to make believers like us feel as if we're the smallest, most foolish, weak-minded, and brainwashed people in the world. And that's exactly what Thomas was doing. Listen, skepticism is really dangerous and destructive as a force in our lives, in our world. The passage goes on. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas, this time, was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I think at that moment, Thomas wet his pants. passage goes on. Then he said to Thomas, and you just need to know, Jesus knows our thoughts even when we don't see them. Jesus hears our words even when we don't see them. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. 
Do you notice he didn't have to put his finger into the nail scars in the hand? You notice he didn't have to thrust his fist into Jesus' side. He just said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. To which some of you go, well, if I could see Jesus like he did, I'd believe too. Really? They realize a lot of people saw Jesus. They saw him heal the blind and heal the lame and heal the lepers and even raise Lazarus from the dead. A lot of people saw Jesus and didn't believe. In fact, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Seeing him was no guarantee of faith and no doubt. You see, the difference between them and Thomas was that unlike them, Thomas had some faith. He had already begun following Jesus, trusting Jesus, believing Jesus. But when he died, it was like the doubt just became too big for him to handle. He wasn't dealing with his doubt properly. And so what Jesus was saying to him in part was, yeah, you had to see me in order for your faith to prevail against your doubt. But blessed are those who can ultimately allow their faith to prevail over their doubts. And how does that happen? How does it happen without seeing him that our faith can prevail over our doubts? Well, look at what the Bible says as that passage continues. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God gave us his word so that our faith could ultimately prevail against our doubts, even in a world of darkness where skepticism and jaded people dominate. God has given us his inspired word, the Bible, so that we might be able to cling to a belief that overrides our doubts so that we could experience life in his name. Just know the indispensable foundation for breaking through skepticism is God's word. And so that's what we're turning to weekend after weekend, day after day in our lives. Let me give you the application to the truth then, since this is such a relevant concept. If we're going to break through our skepticism, we have to properly understand doubt. And I don't know about you, I've literally never heard anyone on a Christian platform and a spiritual influence like this talk about understanding doubt. I've heard it blasted. I've heard it pummeled. I've heard it castigated, but I've never heard someone say, we've got to understand our doubt. It's so important because the Bible's filled with it. I believe with Christianity in particular, many of us don't understand doubt. Many think that they have to live with no doubt at all because if they have any doubt, they, they think that they can't be people of faith. If they have any doubt, then, then there's no way that they can please God. They don't even belong. It just isn't true. It's not. The Bible makes it clear if we properly understand doubt that we can believe in doubt at the same time. Doubt's a part of our human condition. When we start to grow faith, 
All doubt doesn't go away. It walks with us as a companion. It just no longer has to prevail in our lives. And you say, prove that to me in the Bible. Okay. In Mark chapter 9, a dad came and asked Jesus if he could help his boy who was sick. And Jesus said, can I help your boy? Everything is possible with God when you believe. And look at the man's response in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Man, he wanted his son healed. I do believe. But look how honest he was. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but man, oh man, I doubt. What do you think happened next? This guy just admitted, sorry, I, I, I believe, but man, I've got a lot of doubt. What do you think happened next? I'm going to tell you what happened next. Jesus healed the boy. He had doubt. But Jesus still healed the boy. Because it's not about the size of our faith. It's about the size of of our God. When are we going to start getting that right? Right? If we're going to properly understand doubt, then we need to realize that we can experience doubt even as a strong believer. This one really plagues me because I've been following Jesus a long time. My faith really has developed over the years, and yet, man, I still encounter doubt. I go through seasons. In fact, here's what I found. The more I take a deep dive into who God is, the bigger I realize he is, and the more big doubts can erupt, because how can this be, right? We as strong believers, those of us who take the journey, we can doubt too, and I, I experience guilt about it at times and shame, but there's nothing to be ashamed of. Again, in the Bible, look at Luke 7:20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you a question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? What? Do you know who John the Baptist was? I mean, he was the forerunner to Jesus. He prepared the way. He was announcing the way. Multitudes of people followed him, and he kept saying, there is one that's coming who I, I'm not even worth untying his, his sandals, undoing his sandals. I mean, I'm, I'm nothing compared to when he comes, you need to follow him. And he kept preaching and preaching. And then when he saw Jesus, he went, that's the one. He's the one. He's the one to come. He's the Lamb of God that's been promised for thousands of years that's going to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist looked at Jesus, said, he's the one told his followers, don't follow me anymore. Follow him. He's the one. And now he's sending people to Jesus saying, are you the one? He was a strong believer and yet he still had doubt. I can relate. Just understand this. Doubt is a part of the human condition and it's even a part of strong believers' lives. If we're going to really understand doubt, then we need to realize that we're more susceptible to doubt when isolated and uninformed. This is what happened to John the Baptist, right? 
Look at Luke 3.20. Herod locked John up in prison. All of a sudden, he was locked away from everyone. He had none of his spiritual community encouraging him and lifting him up. He was detached from all that was going on. He was just hearing little snippets here and snippets there. He was getting a tweet now and then, that kind of thing. And, and so he was isolated from everybody that could encourage him and hold him up and keep him on fire. He was uninformed. He didn't know what was going on. And, and this is the environment where our doubts can start dominating our lives. It's what happened to John. It's what happens to us. And this is important because, listen, we live in a world of isolation where we try and go it alone with our challenges and our issues. And when we do that, you just need to know doubt's going to prevail. We need each other. So Jesus sent him some encouragement. Look what Jesus said in Luke 7, 22. This was his answer. So he replied to the messengers, go Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. This is, he's saying everything Isaiah prophesied about the one to come is happening. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Look at, doubt's a part of the human condition. But these are the circumstances where it starts prevailing. We need to avoid them. We need to understand doubt in this way. We can fulfill our purpose and still please God and still have doubt. So often I feel defeated and diminished, like I'm not worthy actually to do what God's called me to do because of the doubts that still can prevail in my life, that still nag at me in my life. But, but the truth is, we can still please God and fulfill our purpose, even with doubt. Look at Luke 7, 28, what Jesus said about John the Baptist after John asked him the question, just filled and dripping with doubt. I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John. Jesus didn't rob John of his greatness, of his life-giving pleasure to God, just because he had some doubt. It's a part of the human condition. And you need to know that doubts, when you really understand them, when you approach them right, can be the catalyst for growing our faith. You see, I used to respond to doubt in all the wrong ways. When doubt would creep in, all of a sudden it would diminish my faith, it would diminish my view of myself, and it would actually make me turn away from from my faith a bit. Whereas, man, it's just not working, it's just not working. And the truth is that doubt should motivate us to dig deeper into our faith, to dig deeper into a relationship with God. And too many of us run away from God instead of to him when we're dealing with doubt. But look at the disciples during a period of doubt when their faith was weak and their doubt was big. The apostles said to the Lord, faith doesn't work. No, they didn't. They said, increase our faith. When I encounter doubts, I have found that sometimes those become the greatest seasons of growth for me because I dig deeper and deeper into pursuing him. And the Bible says, when you seek him with all of your heart, that's when you find him. We need to use it as a motivation to go forward. Doubt is normal. Doubt is okay as long as we 
understand it properly. But once we understand it properly, then we need to approach it in another way. We need to, if we're going to break through our skepticism, we need to properly respond to it. We have to properly respond to doubt because when we don't, it starts getting its ugly grip on us and it turns to the darkness of skepticism. And if we're going to respond properly to our doubt, that's when we can get victory because how we respond to doubt ultimately determines whether we break through it or not. So how do we respond properly? Well, it starts here. We need to identify and address the root cause for our doubt. This is really true in my story. It's really weird. I'll be, I'll be running along in my journey of faith, my relationship with God. Things are going great. Things are good. Then all of a sudden, boom, this mountain of doubt starts evolving into my life. And, and I used to like, whoa, where's that going from? And it really knocked me out. But now I realize there's a cause for it somewhere. Something's happening in me. There's a root cause that's doing it. And I have to find that root cause so I can start addressing that. That's what we need to do. The same is true with you. And so as I've gone through it, I've found several in my life. The first is intellectual. There are sometimes intellectual causes at the root of our doubts. And this works in two directions, right? Like for me, the intellectual root cause for my doubts comes because I'm not smart enough to get a lot of stuff, right? But for some of you, it's like your intellect is so high and such a complex thing that you can't come to grips with this idea about God. You need to understand everything. And if you can't understand everything, it starts taking you down. This is the root cause for some people. They have the inability to fully understand God. They can't put him into a mathematical formula. They, they can't verify him in a test tube. So they just can't buy in. In fact, many say that you can't be a thinking person and believe. You can't be a person of science and genuinely believe. Well, let me just tell you, both of those ideas are nonsense. Christianity has been and is filled with intellectuals and scientists. For example, there's a guy named Hugh Ross, brilliant guy, prolific writer, brilliant scientist with a degree in physics and a PhD in astronomy. And then, you know, PhD wasn't enough. So he began focusing his research on quasars and galaxies as a postdoctoral fellow at California Institute of Technology. I can't even say it. And he is it. <laughs> I mean, he, this guy's unbelievable. I hear about his bio and I go, what? And you need to know, Hiraz had no religious background. He wasn't, he wasn't persuaded young to believe in faith in Jesus. And he's kept believing in him in spite of the fact that he's an intellectual. He hasn't, you know, syncretized, put these things into syncretism. Instead, what he's done, as a non-religious background guy, because of his studies in all of these deep areas of science, it convinced him of a creator's existence. It didn't convince him there was no creator. So he started his search because he didn't know God. He, he began testing all the religious holy books and he tested them with scientific and historical methods for accuracy. And in his words, not mine, he said, only the Bible, hands down, only the Bible passed the test. And it so persuaded him of Christianity's validity that he put his faith in Jesus Christ and 
in his holy word. And now his vision is to bring scientific evidence to light for Christianity through the latest scientific discoveries. He's wanting to inspire a world that you can be brilliant and still believe in Jesus. In fact, the more brilliant you are, the more likely you should be. And he's just awesome. And we're having him here, this is the good news, at Northridge the weekend after Easter, April 27 and 28, and I am so excited about it. He's coming. And I just tell you, you, you need to be here because you listen to this guy and you won't understand a word he says. But you go, he's smart and he believes in Jesus, I'm in, you know? But there are some people who are really, really smart like him who will understand everything he's saying and they're in your spheres of influence. You need to invite everyone you know, every skeptic, everyone questioning, you need to invite them in because when they get exposed to this, it can change their view. We could wake them up to Jesus. Here's what you need to know. The reality is that you don't have to check your mind at the door to follow Jesus. The reality is that Christianity is an intellectual pursuit, and that's exactly what the Bible says. Look at Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible quality, you say you can't see God, he's nowhere visible, really? Look at what he created, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen being understood from what's been made so that men with, are without excuse. That's what Hugh Ross found the deeper he dug in. Romans 12, 2 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need your mind engaged. That's when you'll experience God's best. If this is your issue, if the root cause of your doubts is genuinely intellectual, then here's what you need to do. I challenge you to apply your mind to the search. That's what C.S. Lewis did, and he came to faith as a result. There are great books. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism. C.S. Lewis wrote the book about his journey from atheism to faith called Mere Christianity. Gregory Boyd wrote a book called Letters from a Skeptic. He had a lifelong writing uh, experience with his dad who was a skeptic, agnostic atheist. And, and he shared that because in the end his dad realized, whoa, the intelligent thing to do is to to buy into Jesus, and Lee Strobel was an atheist who's become a believer. He wrote The Case for Christ. Listen, the Bible says when you seek, you'll find. Search with that great intellect of yours, and I believe if you don't demand that you decide what you believe before you go to the investigation, you will arrive at the place where many of us have arrived. This Jesus is for real, man. He really is, but there's another root cause. It's relational, relational. Hey, from my experience, most people aren't atheists or agnostics for intellectual reasons at all. No, no doubt they're extremely intelligent and they use their intellect to rationalize their atheism and agnosticism, but their real issues with God stem from relational causes. Almost every atheist I've met is an atheist because somewhere in their life, someone who claimed to know God, someone who claimed to love Jesus disappointed them, hurt them, rejected them, dismissed them, abused them, and as a result, they've dismissed God himself. 
The root of their skepticism, not intellectual, the root of their skepticism is relational. If this is your cause, you need to work on the hurts rather than denying God, the only one who can heal your hurts. And you need to know as well, many of us start moving towards skepticism because we've been so influenced by the people around us. We live in a skeptical, skeptical world. All you have to do is turn on your smartphone or turn on the TV. It's just everywhere. This is what happens to a ton of our young people when they go to college. Look at Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And all the skepticism can influence us to become skeptical ourselves. So we have to intentionally choose to walk with people who are wise, who can motivate us forward, who can challenge us forward in our faith, which is why God gave us Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together and gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I've been a pastor a long time and I've watched it. It's like church is becoming less and less of a commitment and more and more of a casual thing we'll do when the time fits. And it's destroying Christianity. It's destroying your faith. Well, I'll come when it's convenient. I'll come once a month maybe. I'll do this. I'll do that. You're experiencing over time what John the Baptist did. That isolation will take you down. It's not the proper response. You need to get together. And so much more as the day gets more filled with skepticism and more filled with skepticism. And if I could talk to you parents just for a second. This is vitally important for you and your kids. It is so sad that so many families are so sporadic in their attendance. And I'm not trying to get you to come to Northridge more. I'm trying to help you rescue your kids from this dark and destructive world of skepticism we live in. If you want to... If you want to give them any chance of having faith that prevails against their doubts, then you can't make church a once-in-a-while thing. It can't be a haphazard, casual adventure. In this world where skepticism reigns, where all of their friends in all of the schools will be skeptics and filled with skepticism and influencing them towards foolishness, you cannot be haphazard. They need to be with believers. They need to be with believers more and more. And you, parent, are responsible. What do you kid want your kids to be like? And then there's another root cause that we have to identify, and it's spiritual. And some of us have intellectual cause. Some of us have relational cause. But all of us have the spiritual cause. When I am encountering doubt, very often I'll find that I've been letting my spiritual life coast haven't been focused on it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot even see. No matter how smart they are, they're blind. They can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. Even when God speaks, as Jesus did on this planet, they reject it. They don't accept it. They actually say it's foolishness. 
They can't understand them because it's spiritually discerned. Here's the reality. The lack of spiritual life and development in each of us is often keeping us from understanding God. We need to break through it. And God's made it possible for all of us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone will simply put their mustard seed of faith in Christ, even though they have a mountain of doubt left, they can become a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Like the father who desperately wanted his son helped, said, you know, I, I believe, but man, oh man, you have to help my unbelief. That's where we need to be. If we're going to be in Christ and experience new creation and deliverance and freedom, then we need to come to him and say, God, I, I'm believing, but I have lots of doubt still. But you said you came and died and rose again so that I could be forgiven and be given a new life. And look at, I'm putting the little bit of faith I have in you. And I'm asking you to take your great, big, powerful, gracious nature and change me. But it starts with you not letting your doubt stop you. It starts by you letting the little seed of faith in you move you. Before I finish this talk, give you the last couple of important principles, would you bow with me in a word of prayer just for a moment? I believe many of us here right now have been letting doubt be bigger than our faith to stop us from trusting Jesus. And that's why we're not experiencing his impact. Won't you change that right now? And there are some of you, wherever you're experiencing this talk around the world, right here, some of you have never, ever let Jesus forgive you and make you new. Doubt has stopped you. Take the seed of faith you have now and trust him, would you? Just pray with me and my words, take my words, but make them yours. Just say, Jesus, I, I have lots of doubts but I'm turning to you with all of my faith to forgive me. I'm asking you to take your death on the cross and your resurrection to forgive me of my sin and to make me new. I'm trusting in you. I'm calling on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just prayed with me, I just really encourage you, please let us know. I, look, it, it is a huge encouragement for me when I find out someone's taking this step. That's true, but I don't want you to tell us because of me. I want, we have an information about, some information about next steps you can take in your relationship with Jesus. We want to give you a Bible, but to do it, we just have to know you made this decision. So we made it easy. You, you just text us, right? So easy. Here's the number you send the text to, 313131. And the only message you have to send is Northridge. That, just one word, Northridge. And we'll send you that information, that Bible. But there are more steps. If we're really going to properly respond to doubt, then we have to identify our causes for sure. But then we have to embrace that there are some things that we can't know now and may never be able to understand. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is where my mountain of doubts come from. The thing, I, but I just don't, I, I, I don't know. I just, I can't understand that. It's like, God help me. And, and I really let this become a huge challenge. And 
I had to learn to start breaking through it, and so do you. We, we just have to embrace, look at we're not God. There are some things we can't know now and never will be able to understand. Look what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 12. Look what he says to us. I have much more to say to you, but it's more than you can now bear. It, you, it's it's going to crush you. you. You don't need it. It's not going to move you forward. I, I, there's a lot more I can tell you, but you, it's more than you can bear. Now, here's my approach. I always go, try me, Jesus, you know? Because I want to know. But I have to decide, am I going to trust him as God or not? Right? And then look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. We're, we're literally, uh, mirrors used to be really distorted. They weren't as wonderful as they are these days. And it was like you could kind of see yourself, right? But it was really a messed up image. And he says, in our humanity, and this is why doubt is a part of the human condition, all we can see is a poor reflection as in a mirror. But when we're with him, we'll see him face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. He's going to transform our capacities to understand when we're in his presence. But we have to accept for now that we can't understand and know. Here's how I look at it now. If I could understand God, that would mean I'm as big or bigger than him, which isn't true. He's God, I'm not. In fact, if I could understand everything about God, that would bring big doubts about his bigness to me. What we have to do is we have to just realize it's okay that we don't know and understand as long as he does. And we have to trust him there. And if we're going to properly respond to doubt, then this one last issue, we need to learn to trust God even when we doubt exactly what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the faith side. Lean not on your own understanding. That's the doubt side. Don't let your doubts prevail. Don't follow your doubts. Don't let them guide you into dark and destructive places. Take the little bit of faith you have and trust God instead of your doubts. And if you do, in all your ways, you'll acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And so how do we do it? Well, look at Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, the word of God, the scripture, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Where does faith come from? God's word to us. When I used to encounter doubts, I used to actually pull away from God's word and focus on the doubt. It ruined me. Now, when I encounter doubts, I try to get in God's word more because that's where faith comes from and it can allow my faith to prevail. I just want you to know this. The word of God conquers doubt. Don't run from it. Run to it. It helps our faith prevail. It sets us free. And that's what the truth is for. Jesus said it. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's time we experience it. Now, next week, we're going to continue in this series called Breaking Through. I hope you'll come and be here, but 
But before you go, this is a really important communication I want to give to you, okay? I, in several weeks is this thing we call Easter, right? And Easter in our culture is one of the very few times where our whole culture begins to open up to the idea of maybe going to church, right? Maybe. Shouldn't we jump on that with every ounce of energy we have to get them here to experience the hope? I, we really should. And we have been working all year to make Easter relevant and appropriate and helpful and excellent. And you will in no way be ashamed of inviting people and having them come. And I guarantee you, if they come, they will hear about the hope of Jesus in a way that can help to bring transformation to their life. And that's important. But here's what I want you to know. We've decided that Easter should be more than just people coming and hearing a message and leaving. Easter should be the time that we really express the generosity of Christ. And so we'll have a lot of people here, you know. We've been having 25, 30,000 for Easter. If you're inviting people, we could have 60,000. That's great. It's whatever we have is great. But we've decided we don't just want to count numbers to know how many came. We want to count numbers to make Easter count even more. And so a couple of years ago, we came up with this idea. For every single person that comes, you come, we will give to a cause with the compassion of Christ that can make a difference in this world. We give. You come, we give. We've decided that for the foreseeable future, we are going to do you come, we give as a part of our Easter celebration. And this year, for every person that attends our Easter service, we are going to give to battle and wage war against those caught in the bondage of human trafficking. And we're going to try and bring rescue to their name. It's going to be great. And so today, at 1 p.m., we're talking like 45 minutes from now, we're going to release on the Northridge Facebook page. And if you haven't liked Northridge Facebook page, do you want to go to heaven? Okay, no, maybe that's, maybe that's not right. Uh, but if you like the Northridge Facebook page, then you'll get notified in your newsfeed that these things are there. But at 1 o'clock, we're releasing a video about this Easter, You Come, We Give. Uh, we think it will impact you in a big way, but we don't just want you to watch it. We want you to share that video with every single human being in your sphere, anywhere, and with people you don't know, because we believe that two things will happen if they come to Easter. They'll hear about Jesus and have a chance for his hope, but they will also be a part of expressing generosity to those in need. And there are people who hate the idea of church and would never come to church, but when they find out we're going to give to a cause worth giving to, they come just to spite us and then we give them Jesus. And so you invite as many people as you can, all right? And, and then we will, this Easter, see God do a great work. You come, we give. And to help you with your invitations, we've put together this invitation card. You come, we give. On the back is the website they can go to to find out more and all the times of the services. This is something you can rip apart. I mean, you're not giving this big thing. You can rip all these little things off and give to people. This will help you change the world, help you change people's lives, and it will also change you in the process. I'm so glad you were here. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.